This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. title of this evening's lesson is Keepers of the Garden. And as I'm sure you can imagine, that's coming straight out of the story of Genesis of Adam and Eve and, and their role in the Garden of Eden. And I want to start out there at looking at that role that they were filling. But tonight's study is not really about their, their sin, about the fall. It's about that role that they first held of leadership, and specifically that Adam held of leadership over the Garden. And I want to talk about our garden. I think we all have a garden to lead. We all have a garden to keep. And sometimes we don't really want to have a garden to keep. Sometimes we don't want that responsibility, but we all should be leaders of something. And so I hope that through examining Adam and Eve's role and some various roles laid out in Scripture, we can identify what perhaps is our garden and the role that we have to fill as leaders in this life that we have. Let's start out in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, where we see God kind of creating this role and then starting to put Adam, the first man, into it. Genesis 2, verse 8 and 9 says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we kind of see the, the garden first being formed, or this, this you know, sanctuary for humans. And so God makes this garden, and it talks about all these great trees, and the great fruit, and produce that was there, and all this opportunity. I mean, this was, this was paradise. And then God puts Adam in that paradise to live there. But we don't really see his role in this passage specifically. In uh, verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And so there we start to see his role coming into view. This was Adam's job, to tend and keep that garden. You know, when there's a garden, there's, there's work to do. And, and that looked a little different in the Garden of Eden before the sin, because, you know, the main, the main job we have now in gardens is pulling weeds. We've got, we've got work to do because there's other things trying to come into that garden and, and corrupt it and take away the produce. But in this garden, there was still work to do. And, and God knew that, that the man needed work to do. He knew that he needed a role to fill. So God creates this garden knowing that there's a role to fill in it. And then he puts Adam in it and he says, tend and keep it. But that's not all. Just the plants were not the entirety of Adam's garden, this garden of Eden. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this was a part of Adam's domain as well. This was a part of his, his garden. So he has this environment to live in and lead in, but he's also got these characters that play in this garden as well, these animals that God made in an effort to provide companionship for Adam. He's got dominion and leadership over them. So he's got a, a level of responsibility for that. And we see a hint of another layer of Adam's responsibility in this passage when he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. So, you know, we, we know that Eve came along right after Adam. God made her from one of Adam's ribs, and she was a helpmeet for him. She was a companion for him to help him in this role of tending and keeping the garden. But Eve was also a part of 
Adam's responsibility as the man, as the leader of this garden. Eve was a part of Adam's garden that he was supposed to keep, this whole spectrum of his responsibility as a leader. And we really see that Adam was the leader when he blew it. That's when we really see the, the level of responsibility that he held. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So when God calls, he didn't say, Well, Eve ate first. Let's call her name. Let's, let's single her out. And then I'll talk to Adam about what he did. He said, Where's Adam? Where's the man? Where's the leader of this garden? Because I'm going to hold him responsible. And so leadership looks really cool until it comes to the point where you mess it all up and God says, where's the man I put in charge for this? Where's the guy that's supposed to be leading this garden? This garden's falling apart. The wheels are coming off. So where's, where's the leader? And so this is when leadership starts to get really scary is when things start to break down because then somebody's called out. Somebody, the, the leader is held responsible for the outcome of that garden. And Adam was in this passage. And we see that he has been ever since. In Romans 5 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now we know that Eve was partially responsible for the sin. She was held accountable for her part of that. But again, Adam is known as the guy that brought sin into the world and death by sin. So Adam was held responsible for his actions in that garden, that garden that he was responsible to tend and keep. So with the rest of our study this evening, I want to go from this example of, of Adam as a keeper of the garden and then look into some roles that we may fill as leaders and how we can really step into that role in a powerful way rather than just being complacent and kind of getting by in those roles and how we can be good keepers of our garden. You may not think that you have a garden to keep or, or any leadership responsibilities, but you do. No matter how young or old you are, no matter whether you're the youngest sibling or the oldest, no matter whether you're a parent or a child, no matter where you're at, you have a garden to tend. And so the goal, the mission of this study is to identify what that garden is. And I think we'll do that by the end of this study. We'll see what each of our gardens are and how we can lead effectively in those gardens. One of the first roles that we see, obviously, is for husbands. And I want to look at some of the less conventional uh, thought processes about what it means to lead well as a husband. And obviously, this is a, a pertinent study for me, uh, hoping to jump into that role soon, is to know how to, how to handle that, how to handle myself well as a husband. So in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We have a lot of funny ideas about leadership and, and about what that looks like. And a lot of the time it looks like, because we specifically look at it in a professional sense a lot of the time, it, it looks like somebody in this fancy office on the 30th floor guiding the people on the first floor. And it's kind of a distanced thing. It, it, a lot of the time there's a lot of distance and separation between the leader and the people that they lead. And that's, that's not how it's supposed to be, especially in marriage. God says, you leave your father and mother and you become joined with this woman. And you're inseparable. You become one flesh. You, you're the same person. You, you operate as a unit. And so leadership doesn't look like somebody above somebody else telling them what to do and providing them guidance from a distance, but as 
unified, as husband and wife, as one. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 9, it says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun. All your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life, and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Now, Ecclesiastes always kind of cracks me up because it sounds so depressing. He's hitting us with some good, some good information, and then it just, man, it's heavy. But I included the rest of this passage for a reason. He's saying, you got one shot at this. You've got one, one life to live. So live joyfully with your wife. Live joyfully in your marriage. You know, if you think about a leader that you want to follow, it's not somebody that's just beat down all the time and exhausted because they're, they're so tired of leading you. That's not somebody you want to follow. That's not somebody that has any kind of credibility or, or reach to you. That's not somebody you want to listen to. Somebody that's depressed is not somebody that you want to follow because you don't want a piece of whatever action they're in on. But somebody that's joyful and that loves their life and is committed to something bigger than themselves and is living fully, and you can just see the, the joy that that brings to their life, that's somebody that you want to follow. That's somebody that, 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 that you want to join in whatever they're doing. You know, for, for a long time, I kind of lost a lot of my joy because I was so focused on just the daily grind of getting through work, and I would go to the gym, and I would eat food. And that was like my whole life, and it was pathetic. Like, I still had moments of joy, and I was passionate about stuff, but I wasn't really living joyfully. And Cora and a lot of other people in my life have helped bring that back, dial me back in so I'm not just so focused on the grind, and I can take a step back and enjoy people and enjoy, you know, social things and just laugh and just enjoy life. God, God wants us to do that. And it doesn't feel like leadership when we're doing it, but trust me, it is. Laughter and joy are leadership. And specifically in this context, it's talking about marriage and a husband living joyfully with his wife and just, just enjoying it. Just taking time to laugh and just slow down and enjoy marriage and life. And God, God wants us to do that. And that's something that your wife's going to want to be a part of. Rather than this lordship that's just difficult and you're always beat down. It, nobody wants any part of that. People want joy and you can have that together. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 it says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Understanding and honor. Those are great words to describe what's expected from a husband or a wife. Being understanding to somebody else. Being understanding to your partner. I mean, that's, that's a challenge for us because I'll never know what it's like to be a woman. And women will never know what it's like to be men. I mean, we, we have so many just massive differences in the way that we think and the way that we operate that it just there's a certain level of understanding that we're never going to have. But you don't have to understand to be understanding. We don't have to know all the details. We don't have to know all the ins and outs of what somebody else is thinking and their intentions and all these sorts of things. All you have to do is stop and honor and respect that person and be understanding. Listen to them. Be compassionate with them. You don't have to get it. You don't have to have all the answers. People always talk about how men are the, the answer givers. When their women just come to them saying, I'm just trying to talk to you and share my life with you and vent something, and guys are like, you know what you should do about that? Here's how you fix that. I got the answers. Well, you know, we both think we're handling the situation right, but nobody ends up fulfilled. And so understanding is not 
knowing all the answers. Understanding is listening. And honor allows us to do that. If we respect and honor one another, then we can have that kind of relationship. And of course, this applies to, to friendships as well. This applies to any kind of relationships. If we treat someone with honor and respect and understand their perspective, that's going to take us a long way in relationships, and that's going to take us a long way in leadership because people want to follow somebody that understands them. You know, my boss is, is Kalen's brother, and he has represented frequently that he's in our corner and that he understands the position that we're in because he was doing me and Phil's job by himself, you know, a year or so ago. And so he understands the position that we're in. And so he's very respectful of the things that we're trying to accomplish and that these things take time. And that's what people want to, want to hear and what, what they want to feel from their spouse is understanding, compassion, patience. But there's also something in this passage that I think is, is really interesting, especially with our current cultural climate. You know, it says, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. Is that offensive? Because a lot of people would think that's really offensive. There, there's, there's women that refuse to have the door open for them because it's misogynistic when dudes are just trying to be gentlemen. And it's, it's an interesting part of this passage. God's not saying as the weaker vessel to be disrespectful to women, but to just say, look, there's, there's roles here and there's different capabilities, not one greater or, or less than the other. But God wants men to step up and take this role of leadership seriously and to be understanding and give honor and respect, but to also use that masculine strength and energy to step into that role in a way that, that women couldn't. Because we, we have these differences that allow us to step into roles in different ways. So that shouldn't be offensive to anyone. And the Bible says plenty about men, too, that, that is, is negative sounding, has a negative connotation. Because we all have our, our flaws, we all have our weaknesses, but we also have our strengths. And so we can take those strengths as a positive and those differences as a positive rather than a negative. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 26, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. People want the, the victory and the accolades and the accomplishments that come with leadership. But most people don't really want the sacrifice that comes with leadership. Any kind of leadership comes with a great deal of sacrifice in terms of your, your time and energy and resources. It, any leadership comes with sacrifice. And, and Christ represented that perfectly in the sense that he went to the cross and gave his life. He sacrificed his life for our cause. And God says, husbands, love your wives that way. That's the kind of love that God expects of husbands for their wives. It's not just a, a love that you know, pays the bills not just a love that's half-present, not just a love that listens sometimes, but the kind of self-sacrificing self love that Christ had for us to come to the cross. And, and not just that, come to the earth, come from heaven to the earth and live his life here and get tormented and mocked his entire life and then die. I mean, it wasn't just the death, it was also the, the pain and suffering that he went through throughout his life that showed that willingness to sacrifice. And that's the kind of love that God expects from husbands. So this is a powerful leadership role. Husbands have a powerful leadership role. But I don't want us to discount the leadership role that wives have also. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Here we go again, right? This is, this is all we talk about with wives. And so I'm saying, 
leadership, women have an opportunity for leadership, and then wives, be submissive to your own husbands. But hang with me. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. This is another, another misconception that we've created and our culture has fostered, is that submission and meekness are weakness. And that is the furthest thing possible from the truth. Submission and meekness are, are powerful in ways that we don't expect. And in this passage it says that women are leaders by their submission and by their meekness. And it says the, the unbelieving husband can be one to God, not by some you know, passionate speech, not by some you know, pushing him toward that, but just by submission and a consistent lifestyle of meekness and submission and love for a man that maybe doesn't deserve it, that for sure doesn't deserve it. And that's a, that's a powerful leadership role. It's, it's not what we expect, and it's not what probably a lot of people want. But this is one of the really powerful ways that God has said that wives can lead in their marriage. We, both the husband and the wife are, are leaders, just in different ways. We, we lead, you lead that relationship in a different way. And this is coming from a dude that's not married. But we can understand things from the scripture that we would never expect to be the case, and no therapist would ever instruct you. The scripture tells us different, and that submission is a powerful way to lead in that relationship. Let's talk about parents. This is probably the leadership role that comes with the most triumph and the most pain. And I want to look at how hopefully we can step into that role in the best possible way. In Proverbs 22 and verse 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think parenting terrifies me more than anything else. And luckily, I'm not going to have to worry about that for a while. But, man, it, it just terrifies me. Because you're responsible for these little humans that can't make their own decisions yet. And, like, I, I hate holding newborns because they have floppy necks. Like, it's, just, it's terrifying. Kids are kind of scary. And you that are parents know this. You know the, the pain of watching your kids go through hard times you wish you could rescue them from. And maybe you can't. And maybe the best thing that you could possibly do for them is to let them suffer through that pain rather than just going and, and fixing it and taking them out of that situation. And that's, you don't know until you've already done it. And that's just kind of life in general. But I feel like it applies specifically to parenting. You just, you just don't know until you've already gone through it. And then you look back and you can see your, your successes and failures, but sometimes it's too late then. So that's why parenting just terrifies me. But this passage kind of helps us to start to see how you can do it well. Train up a child in the way he should go. To what end? So that he will never depart from it. When he's old, he won't depart from it. And that's the end goal, is to get something ingrained in a person's mind, in your children's minds, so they never turn away from those instructions that you gave them. I see a lot of parents that it seems like their only goal is to make their kids behave right then. It's to make their kids behave so that they look like good parents, because that's just how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to, your kids are supposed to just sit in a, in a line and be seen and not heard, and that, that shows that everybody else around you that you're a good parent. 
And, and I see people just, no, don't, don't do that, don't touch that, be quiet, sit still. That's momentary parenting that isn't seeking that long-term goal of when they're old, they won't depart from it. Of course, there's needs for, for you to tell your kids those things because kids don't sit still or be quiet ever. But there's, there's a bigger goal than just your kids behaving right now and you looking like a good parent. The bigger goal is them long-term hanging on to the instructions that you've given them. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, it says, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. This, is, of course, is every parent's goal. And that kind of, we, we picture that little row of kids just perfectly behaved and quiet and still. And that may not be exactly what it looks like, but parents are looking for their, their children to be in submission and to be respectful and reverent of their parents. That's a part of the goal of parenting. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I think if we tie this to the previous passage, it kind of makes an interesting contrast of what we might think. Uh, we would probably think that bringing your children into submission and reverence involves just serious discipline. And that is partially true. But we might forget this side of the picture where it says, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't, don't take it so far that they don't love you anymore. They don't feel like you care about them. Or you don't feel, they don't feel like you understand. Like we talked about before, people want to follow somebody that, that understands their position. We've, we've all been kids. All of you parents have been kids before. And you, you have memories of how you were parented. And that changes your perspective on your own children. But we can't lose sight of the need for us to be understanding and compassionate and gentle with, with your children in a way that represents to them that you still love them. And, and they messed up, but you're still there for them. I remember, I rub this in the core all the time, but I only got like a couple of spankings as a kid. And I remember that my dad, he said, I don't want to do this. This isn't fun for me. This is not something I do just because I like punishing my kids. This is something I do because God told me to. And so I have a responsibility. And so here we go, you know? And, and that meant a lot to me as a kid. That meant to me, my dad's not just spanking me because he likes it and because he's the boss, but he's trying to do what God wants him to do. So it's not about dad being the boss, it's about God being the boss. And that reminded me that, you know, there's, there's a bigger picture and that he still loved me, and that, you know, life wasn't over, but I'm, I made a mistake, just like everybody does. And so that's something that I remember as a kid that was super impactful for me that I think is, is a powerful way to parent, and that follows this, this instruction in this passage. Employers are another leadership role that some of you are in that position. You're in a position where you're in leadership with people professionally. And that's one that I've never been in and I've never wanted to be in. Because again, there's a great deal of responsibility and there's a great deal of, of challenge in guiding those people in a way that's helpful for them and helpful for you and that meets all the needs of, of everybody involved. But I want to look at a, a couple of passages that show us how that should look. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I hate the word fair. I 
really, I really hate that word because people always use it when they say that something that happened to them was not fair. People always use it in a way that they're accusing somebody else of something or that they're, they're accusing their circumstances of something. And humans are really terrible at just and fair. Humans don't get what just and fair means. We have a, a perception of what those things mean, but we don't get it. And that's why at the end of this passage it says, remembering that you have a heavenly father. Remembering that your master is in heaven. If you're a master of someone, if you're an employer or a leader of someone, remember that you have a master in heaven, and that can put justice and fairness back in the right perspective. In Luke 6 and 31 it says, And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. You know, this is about the simplest representation of justice and fairness that we can have. And it's difficult to to do this all the time to the people around us, but treating other people like you would want to be treated is kind of just an easy metric of, am I doing this right? Am I leading appropriately? Am I treating other people in the right way? Would I enjoy receiving this treatment if I was on the other end? And so the golden rule is something that can keep us in check, and I think especially applies to employers, is to say, look, if I was my employee, would I like to be treated the way that I'm treating the people that work for me? And so that's a good question that you can ask in, again, any of your relationships and any of your social circumstances, but specifically I think this applies in a really powerful way to uh, being a boss or being an employer. So with these things being said, I mean, not everybody is, is covered by these specific leadership roles that we've looked at. But again, that doesn't mean that any of you are not leaders. I think you're all leaders. You all have a garden to tend. You all have responsibilities to fulfill. And you all have people that look up to you. And that may be hard to, to understand right now, but there really are people that, that respect and look up to you and that see you as an example for them. And so I want to look at some just general rules for leadership that can help us to approach that in the right way. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish, ambi selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. You want to follow somebody that's in your corner. You want to follow somebody that's not doing the things that they're doing or leading in the way that they're leading to just get something out of you. You know, a lot of us have had employers in the past that have treated us as dollar signs that, that look at you and all they see is their, their bottom line. And that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like respect. It doesn't feel like they care about what happens to you. It just feels like they're trying to get all they can out of you. And again, to bring Grant back up again, he's said multiple times about, you know, I'll, I'll go to bat with you or I'll go to bat for you with the international corporate level things that we can't really interact with. But he said, look, if, if these things happen and you're under pressure on a corporate level, I'll go to bat for you because I'm the leader here. And so as a leader, he's showed us that he's got our back and that he's going to help us if we're in a, a bad situation. And people want to know that from somebody that's leading them. They don't want to think that whoever's leading them is just in it for their own benefit or in it for, for their bottom dollar, but they're in, it for, they're in it for you. Esteeming others better than yourself, treating other people with respect and humility is the main principle of leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, shows us how we can lead by example. And this is really where the younger people and the people that may not have as many 
responsibilities or uh, opportunities as they see it to lead can really be affected. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12 says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Why do you think Paul had to tell Timothy not to let anyone despise his youth? I bet it was because somebody was despising his youth. There was somebody out there that wasn't listening to Timothy because he was a kid. And I'm grateful that people have treated me with respect when I was a kid and had no business being in the pulpit and telling people, you know, how to live their lives and that people had grace and respect for me. But apparently that, that wasn't always happening with Timothy. People were looking at him and being disrespectful. They were despising him because of how young or inexperienced he was. But he said, don't let that happen. Don't let that change the way that you approach other people because you can still be an example. No matter how young or old you are, you can be an example for other people. And he lists out all these ways that Timothy could, could set an example for others in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You know, when you're young, you may not have the most wisdom. I'm, I'm still young and I don't have the most wisdom. I don't have the most insights on things or the most knowledge to offer. But, but what about love? Can you offer love to people at any age? Can, can you love people at any age? That may be the most powerful example you can, you can give. You know, when you're like under 10, you, know, you don't have a lot to offer in terms of knowledge or in word. But you got a lot to offer in love. you got a lot, a lot to offer in how much you care about people and how much you are just compassionate and that, that you just love on people that are older than you. It's the little things. The little things allow you to set an example for other people. And Timothy, of course, wasn't just a kid. He was still young, young enough that people didn't respect what he had to say, but he could still set an example for them. And that's where we can really encompass everybody that's here. We all have an opportunity to lead by example. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, it says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. I get chills when I read this passage because it's just, it's hard to understand the kind of reach that these people had. You know, Paul in this passage, he's talking to the Thessalonians. And he, and he tells them, your commitment to God and the words that you speak and the actions that you, that you do are making an impact in Macedonia and Achaia. But not just there, everywhere. Like across the known world, their love and their commitment to God had made an impact. And he said, when we go places and they know about you, we don't even need to say anything because your actions have taught them the gospel. Your actions and your commitment to God have taught the gospel to these people so that, that our work's halfway done. We just gotta finish the job. Is that the kind of impact that we have on the people around us? You know, me and Phil work with a couple of guys, one of them's religious and one of them isn't. And it's difficult because you wanna, you wanna push this guy to you know, believe in God and change his perspective. And you know, 
you can't really do that. Like you can, you can throw some things in every once in a while, but he's not going to receive that well. He's not going to receive pushing well. But he sees that we act different, and he says stuff about it. Like he notices things, and he notices things that are different about, about us and him. And what else can you do? Like that example is the best you can do with a lot of people is just to continue to live your life as best you can that makes a bigger impact than you think it does. And for these people, it was such a widespread impact that everywhere Paul went, he said, your actions, your behavior and commitment to God are life-changing, and they're teaching the gospel to the people we're reaching. One final passage this evening. In John chapter 6, verse 66 through 69, we see Christ as a leader and just how committed he was to the cause that he served regardless of who followed. It says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When somebody asks you if you're a leader, what defines your answer? For most people, their answer is going to be defined by the people that are behind them. How many people are following you? That's, that's kind of the question that we immediately ask if somebody asks you that you're, if you're a leader. Jesus wasn't worried about who was following him. He was worried about serving the cause of God. And serving that cause, of course, was gaining followers and, and causing people to believe in God. But he wasn't desperate for followers. When people started leaving him, he looks at his apostles and he says, are y'all going too? But what if they had? What if they'd left? Guess what? They all did. When he was crucified, they all did. And did that change how committed he was to the, to the cause? You know, did he, did he beg to, to be let down from the cross because it no longer meant anything because his disciples ran, ran, ran off? Like, no, that didn't change his commitment to the cause. How many people follow you shouldn't change your commitment to the cause that you serve because the cause is bigger than you. The cause is bigger than you as a leader. And I believe that each of us should be leaders in the church. Each of us should be, should be leaders for God, committed to, to making an impact on the people that are around us. But the goal is not numbers. The goal is not followers. And if somebody asks you if you're a leader, don't look behind you and say, nobody's following me. I, I guess not. I guess I'm not a leader. Say, it, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who's following me, because this cause is so much bigger than me. The cause of following God and teaching His Word is so much bigger than us. And maybe it's more about the teaching and less about who listens. We want people to listen. We want, we want this building to be so full that we've got to build a new one. We've got to add on. We've got to have standing room only. Open those doors and put more chairs out. That's, that's what we all want. We want numbers. But it's not about numbers. It's about how, how committed we are to the cause that we serve. And that's what makes you a leader. Nobody follows somebody that's begging for followers. Begging for followers is the most disgusting thing to people that are, that are trying to figure out who they want to follow. If somebody's like, oh, you know, please you know, follow this perspective that I have. If you're just a vegan CrossFitter about everything that you believe in and you're trying to tell everybody, you just got to get in on this. I'm like, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm good. I think I'll pass. But Jesus was a stud in the way that he, he pursued what he was doing. He was so committed that if everybody said, we're not going to follow, he was still headed the same direction, and we should be too. 
So I hope that we can take these principles and apply them to our lives as leaders. We should be leaders in the church. We should be leaders in our families, whether you're a parent or whether you're a child. We should be leaders. And we can lead by our example. We can lead by our words. We can lead by our love. And most of all, we should lead by our commitment to God because it doesn't matter if they follow. You're, you're still a leader. So commit yourself to that cause that's bigger than you. Don't ask for anybody to follow you. And trust me, they will. It may not be the numbers you're looking for, but somebody's following you. And somebody's going to follow you if you truly commit yourself to the love of God with no concern for those followers. So I hope this, this study's been helpful for you this evening. If you have any need of the church, if you want to be baptized this evening, if you've been taught the gospel, or if you want to be taught more fully, if you want to understand the gospel more fully, we want to help you with that. But also, if you are a Christian, but you don't feel like you've stepped into the God-given leadership role, if you don't feel like you're tending and keeping your garden in the way that you should, aren't we all? Like, we all have gardens to keep, and we all mess it up. And God says, where's my leader? Because we got some, some problems to solve. So if you feel like you haven't been taking charge of your garden or your leadership role in the way that you want to or the way that God wants you to, we want to help you with that by prayer and support in any way that we can. If you need any assistance from the church, please come while we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.